you may find it helpful to have the uh, outline open. That's got the Bible passage that I'll be speaking from printed on it. And you'll also notice there a um, response form or card. I'll be speaking about that a little later on. Uh, you're also very thankful that you weren't here last week, if you weren't here last week, uh, when the humidity outside was about 80%, and since the air conditioning in this box actually wasn't working, um, it was about 110% in here, uh, I actually fainted, but <laughs> I've revived. Uh, so well done if you were here and survived yourself last week. I know of a guy who recently became a Christian in London. Uh, he's got a Christian family, mum, dad and grandparents and so on, and they'd been praying for him for years, but it seemed to no avail. In fact, precisely, possibly because of that pressure, he had flipped out. He'd fried his brain with drugs, he'd given himself uh, with some zeal and gusto to casual sex and an entirely indulgent lifestyle financed by his high-powered IT job. And as things spiralled further and further out of control, eventually he hit rock bottom and he turned to the one place that seemed to him to make sense, that was able to say something to him, to do something for him, to speak to him where he was at. And that was Jesus. He found in the words and gifts of Jesus a healing and a peace for his soul that was like water to a parched throat. Now the first thing he did uh, at that point was he rang his mum in Sydney uh, and she was uh, understandably overjoyed at this change in his life. The second thing he did was to make radical changes to his lifestyle, changes that were consistent with the values of Jesus. That included, most particularly, screwing up his courage and going to work and saying that he was unable to continue in the work that he'd been doing, systematically deceiving clients as he had been up till then. And that if that meant that he had to leave, then that's what he'd do. As it turned out, they wanted to keep him. And so they transferred him to another section so they could keep deceiving their clients in his old section. <laughs> but he could do what he wanted to do, what the work they had for him elsewhere. Life is not particularly easy for him still. Uh, the drugs have meant that he can't concentrate or read. He listens to books on tape now if he wants to read. He's trying to get for himself an education that he squandered. But he lives with a direction and a purpose, a clarity and a foundation that brings him genuine satisfaction. Now, I don't know your situation, obviously, here for each one of you, individuals, your own particular context, background, situation, circumstances, hopes, aspirations, disappointments, dreams. All of that we each carry with us. I'm glad you're here this afternoon, especially if you're not someone who would call yourself a Christian person. And this afternoon, uh, towards the end of our time together, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do what my friend did, to take a step to radically turn your life around. It happened for him at a moment. It was, wasn't a particularly dramatic moment as he came up to it. But as he looks back now, of course, and sees what happened, it was a very dramatic moment to focus it on Jesus and to start living his way. For some people, today is exactly the right day to do that. You know that the Christian message is true. You may not have hit rock bottom like uh, my friend, but you know that the Christian message is true. You see it in your Christian friends around you. And today is the day. But for others, this may be the start of a journey of investigation and inquiry. And in all integrity, now is not the time to make any big decisions. And 
That's okay too. I respect that. But I'm going to urge you to take up uh, the challenge to systematically and, and intentionally find out more. So what I want to do really is two things in our time together today. At one level, I want to speak directly to you. Um, I know what I'm about to say is hard to hear, and let me tell you, it's kind of hard to say too, but I need to say it and you need to hear it. So in speaking directly to you, the first thing I need to tell you is that if you're not someone who has directly asked God to forgive you through Jesus, if you're not a person who has put Jesus and therefore God at the centre of your life so that his values determine your values, so that his way of life determines your way of life and that you're living flat out for him. If you're not a serious Christian, then I can tell you, you have a serious problem with God. Or to put it more accurately, God has a serious problem with you. The way Jesus himself puts it, we Christians didn't make this up, this was Jesus himself put it this way. If that doesn't describe you, what I just said then, then you stand under the wrath of God. The real, personal, terrible opposition of Almighty God. And when God is against you, it doesn't matter who is for you. That's why this issue of change and transformation is so important. Now, I know this is a big call to make. It's hard for you to hear, as I said. I, I warned you. right? And as I say, it's not the easiest thing in the world to say. And I'm going to spend quite a lot of time this afternoon in my remarks trying to make sense of that for you. And I hope by the end of our time together you'll at least see that it's a coherent kind of position, right? It's not just some loopy thing, but it's a coherent position. So the first thing, as I say, I'm doing is to make a very personal, immediate claim about you in your own individuality. But the second thing uh, is, uh, follows on from that. You see, to leave it there would be a distortion, as though you and your problems and your situation were the biggest issue on the divine agenda. And so the second goal of this afternoon is to paint something of the big picture, to present to you a vision which is the Christian vision for the whole world, uh, Jesus' vision of God and the world and life lived at its best and what God is doing about it all. And again, I want to say, I think that this is a compelling, utterly compelling vision, one which makes more sense of our lives and the lives of those around us than any other vision. A vision which actually subverts other visions and evokes from us love and loyalty. Uh, as I said, I'm going to speak from a Bible passage. You see they're printed, so that lets you know that I'm just not making all this stuff up myself. Uh, it's actually in the Bible. It's from the Apostle Paul in a document that he wrote to a group of Christians in the city of Rome in the mid-50s. Uh, that's not the 1950s, that's the 50s, just the zero 50s, uh, first century Christian era, common era, within half a generation of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And you can see I have an extensive outline there that uh, comprises three words, um, three headings. God, sin, redemption. Don't panic about the words. Um, they don't mean what you think. First then, God. We did a survey at Sydney University a few years back and found out that in response to the question, do you believe in the existence of God? Well, actually, how many, how many, what do you think the percentage is? Give me, someone throw out a, give, give me a percentage here. 35, 60, no, 80% actually. 80% said they believe in the existence 
of God. That's actually fairly low. That's actually fairly low compared to equivalent surveys that have been conducted in other places. And it's certainly low compared to belief in God throughout the entire of human history. Nonetheless, 80% of Sydney University students are what you could technically call theists. They believe in the existence of God. Let me say three things about that. Firstly, and um, perhaps one of the most interesting things, this fits exactly entirely within uh, the Bible's own view of God. The Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. It just assumes it. It does have a comment to make, though, about those who deny the existence of God. It says that it's fools who say in their heart, there is no God. It's fools who say in their heart, there is no God, according to the Bible. The Bible's point of view is that it's just so perfectly, straightforwardly obvious that, uh, you know, what, what other kind of sensible position is there? Secondly, though, let me say, I suspect that the reason the proportion of theists is so relatively low at Sydney University, only 80%, is the dominance of the scientific claim to have fully done away with the need for God. Um, actually, this whole debate, really, is based on a false premise, the so-called God of the gaps, that God was the explanation for all the things that we couldn't figure out ourselves. But you see, what happens is, if that's your premise, then as our knowledge of things and science and cosmology and so on just expands, the gaps get smaller and smaller, so God gets smaller and smaller. And the problem is not that God's really actually getting smaller and smaller. The problem is the assumption that that's how we know about God, that God is the God of the gaps. The last frontier, though, on this view has now been finally conquered, they say. Namely, an explanation for why and how the whole universe started in the first place. And apparently, so the great gurus of our modern cosmology, our scientific worldview... Apparently, the universe came from nowhere. A 1988 edition of the Newsweek magazine, praising in a, a great leap of imagination, says that now, and I quote, most cosmologists believe that the, the universe arose from nothing and that nothing is as certain to give rise to something as the night is to sire the dawn. Alan Guff, a brilliant Massachusetts Institute of Technology cosmologist, declared that the universe is a free lunch. It came from nothing. That there was nothing, not God, nor energy, or matter, simply nothing, and then suddenly and spontaneously, the void of nothing gave rise to, or rather decayed, into all the matter and energy that the universe now has. Not so much with a bang as with a ballooned accidentally out of the endless void of eternity from a stillness so deep that there was no there or then, these are his words, only possibility. Alex Vilenkin, a Tufts University cosmologist, says, the universe as a young bubble had tunnelled like a metaphysical mole from somewhere else to arrive in space and time. That someplace else was nothing. Edward Kolb of the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory near Chicago explains, even when you have nothing... There's something going on, apparently. Now, this is what we've got. This is the great scientific explanation for the uh, derivation of the universe. Now, as I said, it rests on a false premise. But the fatal flaw uh, in all of this, apart from its intrinsic nonsense, I mean, it just, it just, these are highly, highly intelligent people, right? And this is the best we've got. And it just shows the desperation that there is to exclude God from the picture. 
But the fatal flaw is that the entire scientific enterprise depends precisely on the, the assumption, on the, precisely on the assumption, that nothing comes from nothing. Or in the Latin phrase, ex nihilo, nihil fit. Out of nothing, nothing comes. I don't know if you're a fan like me of that magnificent, I think probably one of the best movies of all time, The Sound of Music. <laughs> and Maria sang it. Maria sang it when she found out that Captain Von Trapp loved her. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, <laughs> I must have done something good, she says. Now that's lousy theology. We'll see that in a moment. That's lousy theology. <laughs> but it is spectacular science. All experimental scientific inquiry depends on this assumption, right? that there can be no totally new beginning that intrudes into a control area of an experiment. That's the point. Science depends utterly on that commitment. <coughs> Rather, things are caused by something. Now, the reason I say all this uh, is as follows. We live in the most spectacularly precise universe with the most astonishingly finely balanced series of forces that make life possible. It, it leaves every other kind of um, calculation in its wake in terms of the precision, the kind of universe that we live in. And if you are one of the 20%, if you are one of the 20% and are scientifically minded and think there is no God, we can just deal away with God, we've explained God away, science has done him to death, you have a real hard issue that you need to deal with to be, to be a person of integrity, that is. I mean, I don't mind if you want to be sort of just shove the question aside and pretend it doesn't exist. But if you want to have any intellectual integrity, you have a very difficult issue to deal with. Why is there something rather than nothing? And not just any old thing, but precisely the universe that we do have. And the best explanation that the best scientists have for us is, well, it just tunneled out of nowhere. Why do you resist the obvious conclusion? The conclusion which um, a great many uh, all, uh, brilliant people, including uh, physicists and scientists and so on, cosmologists, that we are the creation of a mighty creator. But third, to get to the point of actually agreeing that there is a God is really only to get to a starting point. That doesn't solve, that doesn't finish, that doesn't close any arguments, any discussions. That's just to get to a starting point. It raises the even bigger question, and that is, what is this God like? Is God merely a force like gravity? Is that what God is? Just a kind of cosmic power like gravity? Or is God personal? And if he is personal, is he interested? Is he actually interested in this world and in my world? Or is he indifferent? And if he's interested, what is he doing about the mess? The fundamental Christian claim about God is that God is good. That God is good. Personally, majestically good. And that that is perfectly visible in the life and the death and the resurrection of the one who claimed to be the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. You see it in slightly different language, but essentially making the same point at the start of the par this paragraph from the Bible that I have for you. But now... 
says the Apostle Paul in uh, verse 21. This is Romans, the letter to the Romans, chapter 3, and it's uh, sentence number or verse 21. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in, or probably what's better, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Like a good essay writer, after laying out the body of his argument in the rest of that paragraph, uh, he sums up what he said in precisely the same terms. I've got it for you at the end there, uh, verse 25b. He did this to show his righteousness. We'll come back to what it was he did. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed, it was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. The Christian faith starts and ends with the good or righteous God. Righteousness is being in joint, um, being in right relationship with people, fulfilling your obligations, loving what is good, hating what is evil, standing up for what is right and standing against what is wrong, caring for people who are yours, keeping the commitments you make and only making commitments that you can and do keep. When you are righteous, you see, you live and are right. It's on the side of good. And the point that the Apostle Paul here is making is that God has publicly revealed himself. He's opened up his heart for the watching world to see in the life, the death and the resurrection from the dead of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I don't know how much of his biography you've read. It's relatively short in my Bible. Uh, The four different accounts, which we know as Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're the people who wrote the accounts, uh, take up 160 pages, about 40 pages each. At the heart of each of those accounts lies words which Jesus said in a whole host of different ways and on lots of different occasions. He said, if you have seen me, then you have seen God. No one knows the Father, he said, except the Son, me, and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. In other words, what lies at the heart of these accounts of Jesus is his claim, his claim, to be the open heart of God on display for all. And it is a life of glorious, consistent, majestic, righteous goodness He is so utterly wise, knowing exactly how to treat people, how to stand for right, what God wants of us, how to forgive, when to forgive and when to condemn. He's incredibly kind to those who are victims. He's incredibly angry at those who oppress. He exposes ruthlessly the hypocrisy of those with double standards. He is powerful in the face of human need. That is what God is like, according to Christians. That is what God is like, according to Jesus. Can I say that if you haven't read one of these biographies as an adult, you just sort of heard some stories uh, in former years, you really ought to do yourself a favour and read one. It will cost you half an hour, maybe an hour at most. If you want in any sense to be an educated person in the Western world, you have to have read the biography of Jesus. That's just really, I think, all there is to it. And I think what you'll find there is that Jesus is the most compelling, attractive, authoritative figure 
expression of the righteousness of God. Can I say in all earnestness here, don't be fooled on this one. The depiction of God passed around in our culture is absolutely pathetic. It's pathetic. God is, is depicted as an anemic, weak, tiny figure. <laughs> at, 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 you know, I mean, at best, a kind of indulgent grandfather who just tells you to be yourself and fulfil yourself and this sort of nonsense. At worst, he's just depicted as this sort of finger-wagging but ultimately powerless cosmic policeman. It's just a figment. It's just it's propaganda, really. That's all it is. It's just pathetic propaganda, a straw god. It's a distraction. If you want to know God as we Christians claim him to be, if you want to know God as Jesus claimed him to be, if you want to know God as Jesus claimed he is, then you need to see Jesus. Burning straw gods is hardly a challenge, is it? One final point on this. Jesus' claim, to, uh, Jesus claim rather is a claim to uniqueness. Not only does he say that if you've seen me, you've seen God, he also says that you can see God nowhere else. Nowhere else. In no other figure throughout history, in no other religion, And he staked that claim on the fact that God would stand by him at his point of greatest need, which is, of course, the point of greatest need of all of us, namely the point of death, that God would stand by him and raise him from the dead, which is exactly what happened. Jesus' credibility and the entire credibility of the Christian faith depends utterly and entirely on whether he was raised from the dead, which is not just some neat party trick, right? I mean, it is a neat party trick if you can do it, raised from the dead it's God's megaphone it's God's PA system to the world that this is the one that this alone is the one who truly reveals God who truly reveals God's righteous heart but saying that God is righteous and that that's seen in Jesus saying that he is good equally raises other questions and in particular what seems to me to be the biggest question of them all. If God is so good, how come things are so bad? And I think that brings us to perhaps an even more misunderstood thing about the Christian faith, the S word, sin. Sin is a term Christians use, and I move therefore on to my second point, sin is a term Christians use to recognise the fact that things are not the way they are supposed to be. You may have seen the movie Grand Canyon. It's in, uh, in it, a lawyer is caught in a traffic jam and tries a back route around the traffic jam. Uh, as he gets progressively lost, uh, as the streets get more and more spooky, uh, eventually he keeps going until, predictably, the car stalls and the hoods, you know the hoods with their big sand shoes and the hoods? <laughs> the hoods approach. Uh, the lawyer calls for a tow truck which arrives just as the five toughs are about to set to work. Anyway, this tow truck driver is a nice roly-poly kind of guy. And he starts to hook up the car to the truck while these guys are you know, getting out their knives and sort of sharpening, all that sort of deal. The thugs protest, you know, you're interrupting our meal here. And the tow truck driver says to them, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking if I can. 
And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Now, I don't know where that tow truck driver learned his philosophy, right? But that, I'll up there with Maria. You know, that is deep. That is deep. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. Now, in a sense, that's a claim which needs absolutely no defending. It is transparent. See, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean that if that was you. I mean, I did mean it, but I didn't mean to embarrass you. That wasn't supposed to happen either. In a sense, this is a claim that uh, needs no defending, does it? It's transparently obvious. You see it in the world around us. Can you pick a day that does not demonstrate a thousandfold the truth of this fact? George Steiner, a philosopher and commentator who has the post, and I like this title, Extraordinary Fellow at Churchill College, Cambridge. Okay, you too could aspire to be an extraordinary fellow. <laughs> he writes about it in this way. This is pretty heavy, okay, but I, I, we spend so much time kind of ignoring this. Uh, it's just worth laying this on you and making sure our eyes are open to this. I quote, Inhumanity is, so far as we have historical evidence, perennial. Inhumanity is perennial. There have been no utopias, no communities of justice or forgiveness. He goes on more specifically, for the whole of Europe and Russia, the 20th century became a time out of hell. Historians estimate at more than 70 million the number of men, women and children done to death by warfare, starvation, deportation, political murder and disease between August 1914, you know what happened then, and ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. 70 million people we have killed this century. He says, it's not only that education has shown itself incapable of making sensibility and thought resistant to murderous unreason, far more disturbingly the evidence is that refined intellectuality, okay, I mean he's looking at university students when he says this, refined intellectuality, artistic virtuosity and appreciation, scientific eminence will collaborate actively with totalitarian demands or at best remain indifferent to surrounding sadism. He concludes, to repeat, violence, oppression, economic enslavement and social irrationality have been endemic in history, whether tribal or metropolitan. But the 20th century has, owing to the magnitude of massacre, to the insane contrast between available wealth and actual misery, to the probability that thermonuclear and bacterial weapons could in fact terminate man or his environment. The 20th century has given to despair a new warrant, a new reason. And if you do resist the temptation to simply numb out and take with full seriousness the reality of the world that we live in, it renders plausible the famous saying of the existentialist philosopher Albert Camus, the only serious philosophical question is that of suicide. We live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. And you need to recognise that fact because we Christians have been saying it for years. We call it sin and we're right. But it's not just the structures, of course, is it? Out there and beyond. Though there's truth in that. It's real, normal people like you and me. And the great reality is that it is all of us. We are all part of this problem. 
not part of the solution. The Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of her or his own heart? We can do our level best to deny it and our capacity to invent new and effective ways to quieten our conscience is substantial but in the end, although we might fool others, we will never fool ourselves. I know of a woman after her 90th birthday who confessed to a grandson one night me and Percy didn't wait, you know. She meant that they'd slept together before they were married, 70 years earlier. And that had burdened her conscience until she was finally able to speak words to a skinny, punky grandson. What's more, even when one part of us is good and there's no denying that we're capable of kindness and love at some levels, that gives no guarantee that the other side will be. We all know of hypocrites since we all know ourselves well enough. The author Sylvia Fraser in a book about her earlier life tells of the tributes paid at her father's funeral. He was a man of proper and regular habits, an upright man who didn't smoke or drink, a polite and neighbourly man who kept his snow shoveled, his leaves raked and his bills paid. It's in America. He'd also sexually abused his daughter Sylvia from age, ages 4 to 12, threatening her first with the loss of her toys, then with killing her cat and then with sending her to an orphanage if she were to disclose their secret. He had sealed off a one level an upright man, highly respected, eulogised at his funeral, and another part of his life, deeply, profoundly evil. He'd sealed off one part from the other, compartmentalised. And that's a tried and tested strategy. Now the Apostle Paul knows about this, right? He puts it in that sentence there that I have for you under the heading sin, the second half of verse 23, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are not many things that are true for all people. We all have different backgrounds, different cultural baggage, different personalities. We come from different schools, different abilities. We have different opportunities, different sadnesses and joys. But there is one thing that is absolutely common to all of us. We have all sinned. And the Christian faith is absolutely realistic in naming the fact that things are not the way they are supposed to be and we are all responsible for that. We have fallen short, says Paul, of the glory of God. That is the destiny, the glorious destiny of being in joint, of things being the way they were supposed to be. The destiny that God had for all of us of a life lived well and truly, righteously, with what the Hebrews call shalom. Everything and everyone ordered correctly and in, uh, and in right relation to everyone and everything else. So these are the first two words of the Christian faith. God, first, always. And then secondly, sin. But when you put the first two words together, those first two points, it leads to a problem. On the one hand, you see, we want, we desperately want, don't we, for God to be righteous. 
to demonstrate the fact that he is righteous, to do something about it, to fix up the mess. But at the same time, we recognise that we are more a part of the problem than we are of the solution. So that leads to the third word, redemption. Point three, redemption. It's commonly thought, I think, that God's first instinct in the face of sin is to condemn. That is not true. That is not true. His first instinct in the face of sin is to rescue, to redeem those who are the victims of sin. You see it from verse 24 there. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. Now that's a dense little sentence, right? That takes a a little unpacking, so we're going to unpack it from the end, moving kind of backwards to the beginning. At the heart of it is a phrase, that little phrase, sacrifice of atonement. Sacrifice of atonement. Now, atonement is a made-up word. It means at-one-ment. Where you've had a fight with someone and you want to be friends with them, you want to be right with them, what you do is you make it up to them. Uh, I, from time to time, have fights with my wife. Um, It's all her fault, as you would understand. (laughs) And when I do that, I go and buy flowers. Um, And I give them to her to make it up to her. In fact, whenever there are flowers in my house, uh, you know that I've been atoning. (laughs) Or it's our anniversary, which it was yesterday. In fact, I just thought I'd let you know. 13 big ones. Anyway, one one of the strongest portrayals of atonement is the movie The Mission. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, uh, in it is a character uh, played by Robert De Niro, who's a hard man, set in the 16th century. Uh, a hard man, a mercenary and merciless soldier who accidentally kills his brother and is utterly grief-stricken at the fact. He realises that he's betrayed his brother. He's betrayed himself. He has betrayed God. And so he tries to make it up. He tries to make it up by punishing himself, turning his back on his formerly violent life, Uh, The movie's set in South America. And so he climbs a mountain up to a a mission station on the top of a cliff, way miles up. And he climbs this mountain with all his armour tied in a sack on his back at the end of a rope. Very dangerous. This cliff is slippery. It's steep. The the thing gets snagged. And so he's punishing himself. He's seeking to atone for the fact of his life, which has culminated in the killing of his brother. He tries desperately to make up for the terrible thing that he's done. It's a very dramatic moment. And he's got exactly the right attitude, doesn't he? That's the point. You can see, you can feel how that works, realising that there is a making up to do. And I want to suggest, if you know anything of yourself, you'll know that there's a making up to do. But it's too late. You see, the whole point is that Jesus makes it up to God for us. Jesus makes atonement to God for us. He has climbed the mountain for us, carrying on his back the load of our sins, our participation in the fact that the world is not the way it's meant to be. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, suffering the punishment that we deserve, the punishment that is right, that is only right. And this atonement that Jesus makes is a, is, is a redemption. It's a rescue from this drag of sin. Redemption's a big word. It comes from the history of God's people Israel in the Old Testament 
when they were redeemed, when they were rescued from Egypt, that great oppressive, enslaving, dominating power in the world, crushing Israel, and God brought her out of there. And Paul's saying that through the sacrifice of atonement, God brings people out from under another great power, a great power this time not of a political domination, but of a spiritual domination of sin and its consequences, death. Which leads to the conclusion, you see, the Apostle says, in this way, God justifies us. God justifies us. Now, you, you guys may be too 90s to remember the Madonna song, Justify My Love. Anyone heard of that? No. Wow. One, thank you. I'm 35 and proud of it. I just want to let you know. Justify my love. It means make my love right. Make my love not a waste of time. Prove it to be right. To justify actually is a word that's related to the word for righteous. To put right. To make righteous. That is in redemption. In redemption that we have through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. We have a redemption to a right relationship with God. He as your God and you as his person with a clear conscience, an open relationship, real purpose in life. So that when he does come to clean up the mess, when he does come to make things the way they're supposed to be, you'll be on the side of the party, not the side of the cleanup. I said that I was going to ask you to become a Christian today, right here, right now. And becoming a Christian really is as simple as turning in your heart and your will from sin, not sin in the trivial way that's usually meant by the word, but in the way that we've looked at today, to turn from sin and to turn to God through Jesus' atoning death for us. Now again, let me say, for some people this is not the right time. You need to investigate further. And I want to respect that and say two things. One, be active about that. You won't find out more by just waiting it for, you to, for it to happen to you. Um, that won't work for your exams and it won't work for your spiritual development either. So uh, in a moment I'm going to invite you to fill in the response card and say, I would like to find out more about Christianity. That just makes sense, doesn't it? If you go, I spoke to a guy once who said, I'm, I'm investigating the Christian faith. I said, what are you doing about it? He said, nothing. I said, given my conflict avoiding kind of tendency, doesn't that lack integrity? <laughs> and it did. And he knew it did. And so he investigated. And he was converted. Because it bears up investigating. Let me say also, why don't you pray if you want to investigate further? Pray that if God is there, he would make himself known to you. Can't hurt you. And it's a prayer that God answers. But for some, it is the right time. You know that Jesus is who he said he is. You know that you need to do business with God. You know that this deal with sin and being out of joint and out of kilter with God is all too true. So what I want to do just in a very brief moment together is to lead you in a prayer. There's nothing magic about the words. Uh, it's a prayer which just kind of sums up some of the thoughts that we've uh, been looking at today and asks God for the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus. So why don't we all just uh, take a moment, uh, get a bow, uh, your head, that would be helpful, or close your eyes just so that no one's embarrassed, and in the quietness of your own mind, pray with me now. Gracious God, thank you for your righteous, good character. I confess that I have sinned 
and know all too well that I have fallen short of your glory. Please forgive me through Jesus' death for me. And help me to live for you.